Good morning, Emmanuel. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. And for a second week now, we'll try to be introduced to the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to one more time uh, do an overview of the whole sermon. I'm not reading it again. Uh, just reading the beginning portion of it, but again, trying to get a sense of the whole before we dive into the various parts in the coming weeks and months. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, through what are often called the Beatitudes or the Blessings of Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 12. So, Matthew 4, 23, I'll be reading to... Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Every word I'm reading is the words of the actual Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and delivered to our hearts by that Spirit. In other words, to read the Word of God is great interaction with God's supernatural world, word. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's Word. Father, we come before you and ask you that even in spite of my poverty of spirit and our poverty of spirit, that you would work exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine, that you would speak to us in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that we would, our faith would be set on who you are and not on the words of man, but on the words and on the power and the promises and the glory of God. 
Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most striking phrases that Jesus ever uttered, and he uttered quite a few striking phrases, but one of the most striking sayings Jesus ever said was, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Find that in Matthew chapter 12. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, for us, that saying is usually going to create a fair amount of uneasiness. We don't like what our mouths give away about us. Often our mouths paint a picture that we were trying to hide. A picture of anxiety, perversion, bitterness, jealousy. Our mouths show off what's going on inside of us. And so for many of us, our, our mouths are, are something we wish we could control even more so we didn't let on what was going on where no one can see. So those words are piercing for us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But I wonder if you've ever thought, as I began to think this week, of just how amazing that statement is when applied to Jesus. Out of the abundance of His heart, His mouth speaks. All the words of Jesus are not masking His heart, but they're a revelation of what's going on internally in the Son of God. Every word that Jesus ever spoke, these three chapters we're studying in the Sermon on the Mount, they're all a revealing of the heart of God. They're all a display of the deepest reality in the universe. What is the heart of God like? And of course, we know that when we see the heart of Jesus Christ, we're seeing the heart of the Spirit, and we're seeing the heart of the Father. Because Jesus said, if anyone had seen Him, they had seen the Father. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are on display in fullness and in truth every time a syllable drops from the mouth of Jesus. Which means that the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous sermon ever preached, is a revelation of God's heart towards His disciples. Notice the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. We get it right there in the first verse of the sermon. It says, seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. The specific focus, the, the target audience of the Sermon on the Mount are the disciples. You might remember in Matthew chapter 4 that we heard Jesus say to Peter and James, or to uh, James and John, and to Andrew and Peter, follow me. He was inviting them to be his disciples, inviting them to be learners from him. And now he's settling down on the mountain to specifically instruct them, to specifically entrust his teaching to them, to, to tell them how things operate in the kingdom that he's founding and in the kingdom that they're now citizens of in. And, and you need to understand this. That when you think of the Sermon on the Mount, you kind of need to think of a sermon with two audiences. A specific audience and a more general audience. I say that because if you look in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain. And in the section we just read a minute ago, we saw that the crowds included people from Jerusalem, people from other nations, Syrians were there. There were Jews and Gentiles listening to Jesus when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking to the crowds. And we know that the crowds stay there the whole time he was preaching, because when we get to the end of the sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it says, when Jesus finished saying these sayings, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
So in one sense, the Sermon on the Mount is going forward. The king of the earth is addressing the peoples of the earth. The, the king of David, the, the one who's come from the line of David, is now speaking to Syrians and Jews, Jews and Gentiles. He's talking to everyone with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also a sense in which the Sermon on the Mount is not specifically for a general audience, but it's specifically revealing his heart for the ones who've actually committed to following him. Do you see that distinction a little bit there? Seeing the crowds, there they are. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's sort of an inner circle where the disciples are listening and attentively paying attention to what he's saying. And it's clear when we go on in the sermon that it's not just all equally applicable to everyone you ever met. As we go down to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he's going to say, you are the salt of the earth. And then he's going to tell us in verse 14, you are the light of the world. He can't be saying that to everyone. He can't be saying to the world, hey world, you're the light of the world. Hey world, you're the salt of the world. Now he's speaking specifically, even though the crowds are listening, he's speaking specifically to his disciples. He's telling them who they are. He's telling them what's expected of them. He's telling them about how they continue on this path that he's got them started on, this path that will take them all the way to heaven, all the way to seeing God on the last day. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a revelation of God's heart for you, of God's heart for me, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. At different times in my life, I've prayed that God would bring a man into my life who would specifically disciple me in various areas that I thought I needed attention and give me some leadership on how to follow Jesus at that particular time in my life. And it's been interesting over the years how God has regularly answered that prayer and brought specific men into my life to disciple me. But it's also been interesting how many times I've prayed that prayer and he hasn't answered that prayer. Where it hasn't been that particular individual who I thought was just the right person to disciple me. And what's amazing is remember that in all of those times, we're still being discipled. Not by a person that we think is particularly gifted to give all their attention to us, but by Jesus. If you feel lost in your Christian life, Jesus wants to disciple you. If you feel like you need leadership in your Christian life, the Son of God wants to personally disciple you. If you feel like there's so many paths out there, how do I know which way to walk? How can I get myself all the way safely to heaven? Well, you can't get yourself there, but the Son of God will personally disciple you. And He'll do it through His Word, and He does it in a very specific way through this Sermon on the Mount where he gives what John Stott calls the closest thing he ever gave to a manifesto, really to, to a guide, a sure guide for disciples to make it all the way home safely into the kingdom of heaven. There's three things that I believe this sermon really shows us about the Son of God and about his heart to disciple us. It shows us what He wants us to teach us. That's really what it means to be discipled. It simply means to be taught by someone. To have them as their teacher and to be taught by them. And there's three truths that His words reveal that He wants to bring us into. And the first thing He wants all disciples to know is His heart for them to know how blessed they already are. The first thing Jesus wants to express to you as He disciples you and I in the Sermon on the Mount is not how hard it's going to be. It's not how hard you're going to have to work. It's how blessed you already are. How blessed each and every disciple of Jesus already is. 
Notice that in verses um, 1 through 12 especially, though I think we could extend it even out to verse 16, Jesus is expressing how blessed every believer is. We have here in this section from verses 2 to verse 11 what are commonly called the Beatitudes, but we might be able to summarize a bit more biblically just by calling them the blessings. The blessings that Jesus pronounces on every single believer. And I want you to notice when we read these Beatitudes that we are not reading commands. It doesn't say be poor in spirit and you'll be blessed. Be merciful and you'll get mercy. It is not telling us to be a certain way. It's announcing a blessing on a particular kind of person who already exists. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking about the, what, what he's done in a believer's heart. And what he's done in a believer's heart can be summed up all by the middle phrases in the Beatitudes. What do I mean by the middle phrases? In every Beatitudes, there, there's three parts. Blessed, this pronouncement of blessing. Are the, the people who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So first there's the pronouncement of blessing. Then there's the people who are blessed. And then there's the future aspect of that blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are a particular people, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what's being told to us here is the blessings that are already on every single child of God. Every single believer, whoever has lived, has these blessings. Whether or not you feel them is irrelevant right now. We'll get to that. What's important is to know is that they are yours. These people are are blessed. Blessed are these people. This is reality. This is the way the universe is working. These people are blessed. What is it to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, it's probably my preacher's duty to say it's not about material blessings. But material blessings can be from God. God really can bless us materially. And when that material blessing comes in a life of faithfulness, there's nothing to be ashamed of or feel sorry for. But material blessings can't be the sum total, and they certainly can't be the root and the core of what it is to be blessed by God, can they? Because there are wicked men with lots of money and there are godly men with not a penny in their pocket. So what is at the root of being blessed? My favorite definition of blessing in all the Bible comes from a passage that you have no doubt heard if you've attended church more than, say, three or four times in your life. Because this is regularly repeated in most churches. It's called the Aaronic Blessing. It comes from Numbers chapter 6, and you're often going to hear it read at the end of services. The Aaronic blessing goes like this, which just means a blessing that came from Aaron the priest in the Old Testament. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Years ago, it was pointed out to me by a preacher that that blessing says the same thing three times. That like so much Hebrew poetry, it works not on rhyming like English poetry, but on parallel statements, each that amplify the one before him. So what does it mean for the Lord to bless you? Well, you look at the next line. It means His face is shining upon you. What does it mean for God's face to shine upon you? It means for, us to lift up, for Him to lift up His countenance upon you. The simplest definition I know, and I think the most biblical definition I know of being blessed by God is this. It is to be under His smile. 
It is to be under his smile. Last night I was sitting out on our covered deck out behind the house and the rainstorm started coming down and I started wondering if I was going to be hit by lightning myself. It was coming down with so much power. And all around me was dark and all around me was rain and all around me was lightning. Everything around me looked bad. But I knew that behind those clouds was the sun. And that that sun, even at that moment, was keeping me warm. Still warming every single person on the earth. And that someday, like today, those clouds would be gone and I would once again be under the radiance of that sun. To be blessed by God is to be under his smile. The sunshine radiance of his face. That's what it is to be blessed by God. And here's Jesus at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do? He starts by telling us this. You disciples are blessed by God. You are under his smile. Think about this. These guys hadn't even had like a few weeks of discipleship. These were brand new. They were about to do all kinds of things like hop off the boat to walk on water and drown almost and, and argue with each other about who was the best in the kingdom. And before they get into all of that failure and misery and sort of messing up and stumbling along, here's what Jesus said to them. You're under God's smile. Right now, disciple, you're under God's smile. God is smiling on you. The, the, radi the radiance, the sunshine, the smile of his love is where you live. Now, why does he tell them that? Why does he tell the disciples out of the abundance of his heart that they are blessed? Because everything he's done in their heart doesn't feel blessed. The Christian life does not generally feel blessed. Think about the characteristics. Think about how he describes believers in this passage. They are poor in spirit. Now, we all know how good it feels to feel poor, don't we? Nothing like wanting to do something and not having a dollar to your name to do it. But poverty of spirit is worse than not having a dollar to your name. It means that you recognize that even though your God has so many expectations of you to love and rejoice and worship, it's not there in your heart. You're empty. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, but what's in you is not that by yourself. In fact, the Bible says, without Christ, we're all dead in trespasses and sins. It says that the work of our flesh just breeds division and chaos and destruction. And so here you are, you're a brand new believer, you're following Jesus, and what's been the effect of following Jesus? He told you to repent, you felt bad, you said you were sorry, and now as you walk with him, what do you experience? You realize there's a bunch of lack in you. And for those of you who've been Christians 10, 20, 30, 40 years, if you haven't noticed already, his primary goal is to keep making the same point. We're poor in spirit. And not only are we poor in spirit, but we mourn. We mourn. Oh, North American life is set up for celebration. It's set up for a party. You feel bad if you feel bad. Because you're always supposed to feel good. Even our funerals are happy. But now Christians start following Jesus. And they mourn. They mourn that life didn't turn out like it was planned. They mourn that they're more sinful than they even dared to conceive. They mourn about all the evil that's all around them all the time. There's constantly one more new cause for heartbreak. And whereas before they might have drunk it away or they might have distracted themselves, now they find themselves paying attention to this mourning. And they're meek. They're meek. Something about following a crucified Savior makes it so you're not always the kind of person elbowing yourself to the front of the line. Trying to show how everyone how you're the alpha. And you're not always satisfied. 
You're always hungry. You always wish you were more righteous. You always thirst for more righteous. You're hungry and thirsty for more righteous. You wish you were more righteous. You wish your church was more righteous. You wish your denomination was more righteous. You wish the world was more righteous. You wish your nation was more righteous. You're hungering for it all. It's just a constant ravenous hunger. I've been skipping breakfast lately. Try to lose a little weight. I hate it. Hate it all the time. I never like it. You know why? Because I don't like being hungry. I like being full. And that's my problem. <laughs> but enough about me. There's this constant gnaw in the Christian's life, isn't there? I want something that isn't there. I want more righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Really? Because it feels like taking advantage of are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Really? Because being a peacemaker feels like you're in the middle of other people fighting all the time. Nothing about the Christian life feels good by itself. And the faster we get that into our minds, the better we will be. The only blessedness of the Christian life comes from this, taking Jesus at his word. Not from taking circumstances as they feel, but from taking Jesus at his word. You feel poor, you feel persecuted, you feel meek, you feel hungry, you feel merciful, you're a peacemaker, that's you, none of that feels really good and you're under the smile of God. That's what he wants to say to you. That's what's in the abundance of his heart. He wants you to reinterpret your life. He wants you to reinterpret your life experiences. He wants you to think differently about what he's doing in you. Because what he's doing in you does not always feel good. It feels like an emptying. But he's teaching you the same thing he taught in the Old Testament. The broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. We despise the broken, contrite spirit. We want to have it all together. But he does not. In fact, he smiles on the broken and contrite spirit. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount starts with a declaration of blessing. We'll get into this in the coming weeks, but I should just, lest you get too happy, remind you that all the blessings are future. The big ones. The kingdom of God hasn't fully come. Worship was great this morning, but you didn't see God. The final revelation of God's mercy hasn't come yet. What's Jesus doing? He's setting us up for a real Christian life. One where being exposed to him produces a poverty of spirit, a meekness, a purity of heart, persecution. But we don't despair because we're under the smile of God. Not because he changes our circumstances, but because he lifts up the veil and shows us what's coming. What's coming is you'll see God. What's coming is you'll receive mercy. What's coming is that you will be rewarded. What's coming is that when the kingdom of heaven is established and all of his enemies are destroyed, you will not be one of the enemies who are destroyed you will be one of the friends who's brought in. That's what he wants you to know. That's his abundant, overflowing heart towards you. Can you imagine? You finally get to preach to a bunch of sinners who've been sinning against your father for, two, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And what's the first thing out of your mouth? Blessings. I want you to know all the blessings 
that God has for you, impoverished sinner. So good. So his heart is for his disciples to know how blessed they are by him. Second thing we find in the Sermon on the Mount is his heart for his disciples to know his ways. His heart for his disciples to know his ways. Now I want to introduce you to the way I'm going to divide up the Sermon on the Mount. I'm dividing the Sermon on the Mount into three sections. And roughly I'm following uh, the lead of a Sermon on the Mount scholar by the name of Charles Quarles. I've kind of renamed these sections, but basically lining up the same way he has. And I would give you the three sections of the Sermon on the Mount like this. The first is the disciples' blessings. The disciples' blessings. And you'd find that in Matthew 5.1 through 5.16. The disciples' blessings. How they're blessed, blessed are you, and how they bless. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The disciples' blessings. Matthew 5.1 through 16. Second section is the disciples' righteousness. The disciples' righteousness. Matthew 5.17 through 7.12, which is basically the entire sermon. The disciples' righteousness. The way the disciple is called the walk is the bulk of the sermon. And we'll get to there in a second, but the sermon ends on what I would call the disciples' assurance. The disciples' assurance from Matthew 7.13 through to the end of Matthew chapter 7. So, we're in that middle section. Matthew 5.17 through chapter 7, verse 12, the disciples' righteousness. And as Jesus speaks about the disciples' righteousness, the righteousness we're called to live out, we're hearing his heart for you to know the ways of the kingdom of heaven. It'd be very possible, wouldn't it, for us to sort of glance through uh, Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 7, verse 12, and maybe if you do that, if you just look at it, you know, maybe look at the big letters in bold, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, the Lord's Prayer, fasting. It would be very possible to look at that and think, okay, well, Jesus had a lot to say, and he's kind of all over the place, and he had just a lot of different topics he needed to cover. But they all share one thing in common. They're all teaching us the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And make no mistake about it, this righteousness, in terms of thinking about oaths, thinking about divorce, thinking about retaliation, thinking about prayer, but not praying so other people notice, praying so God will notice, this righteousness really is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. And hear the words of Jesus when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the people regarded as the most holy in his day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's really possible for the people in a church like this one 
to get the idea that the only thing required to enter the kingdom of heaven is right doctrine. That is, if you believe the right truths, God is one, we are sinners, we are unjust before God, but he has declared us righteous in Jesus, it's really possible to get the idea that right doctrine alone will be sufficient for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. The only thing standing between you and that being true is Jesus. Who says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom. No one without a transformed life will be saved. Ever. Now, there's many errors that have crept in over the years into the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. There's many errors that people make when they come to this magnificent sermon. One error goes like this. Uh, scholars, especially in the uh, early 1900s, uh, came along to the Sermon on the Mount and they saw this high standard of living, this unbelievable mercy that's being called for. If someone says uh, they want your coat, uh, if someone wants you to walk with them a mile, walk two miles, they see this unbelievable ethic. And you know what they said? The early dispensational scholars said this. Some of you came out of dispensational churches. The early dispensational scholars came along and they said, this standard of ethics isn't even for today. This is for some future millennium. This is way too high for today. What a dangerous teaching that is when you realize that if you do anything to discourage people from walking in this kind of new righteousness, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. A, another big error, and I'm gonna spend a little time here, so settle down. Another major error that can come into our interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount is what I'm going to call the law gospel error. The law gospel error. Whoa, okay, what are we talking about? Here's what we're talking about. There's two categories taught by the Bible that if you don't understand, honestly, you don't really understand the fullness of the Bible. To really understand the Bible, you need to understand the law and you need to understand the gospel and you need to understand the related and how they're different. So what's the law and the gospel? Well, the law is this. The law is God's standards and the consequences for breaking those standards. The law says, do this and you will live. The, the law is expressed uh, right at the very beginning of creation where God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit or you'll die. That was part of God's law. Shows up again in the Ten Commandments. Don't have other gods before me. Don't covet. And if you do, you will die. Throughout the Bible, we hear God's moral heartbeat in the law. It says, do this and you will live. If you don't do it, you will die. That's the law. The gospel is very different. Well, they're related, but they, it is, it's, well, it's, it's the opposite. The gospel comes along and says, here is what Christ has done. Christ has come and obeyed the law perfectly. Christ has come and he's, he's done all the law required. Christ has come. And he has fulfilled the righteousness of the law. In fact, he even took the death penalty the law demanded. The, the law says do. The gospel says done. The law tells us what God requires. The gospel tells us what God has given. And we need to understand both of them. They're both truths set out as plain as day in God's word. But here's the law gospel error, okay? What I just said is law gospel truth. But here's the error a person could make. They come along to a verse like verse 20, 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And like, that's law. That's law. That's showing me that I, I have not lived up to God's righteousness. I haven't been good enough. So what do I do? I flee to Christ. I, I, I grab a hold of Christ and, I, and he saves me. Well, that's true. But it's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that his disciples, who've been made poor in spirit as they see how much they've broken God's law, his disciples who've been made pure in heart as they've trusted his gospel, his disciples must actually go on to live changed lives. They must actually go on to live lives that exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me compare this to something you know. What I'm saying is exactly what we find throughout the Apostle Paul. It's exactly what we find throughout the book of Romans. What does Paul say to us in Romans chapter one through three? He says, you are under the law. You have broken the law. You have sinned according to the law. You, 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 there's none righteous, no, not one. He tells us that the whole world is condemned by God's law. And then he tells us that there's a blessed man who knows the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The law says you've sinned. The gospel says you're forgiven. It's done. It's accomplished. And then what does Paul say right after that? He says that by the Spirit working in us, all the law ever required begins to be fulfilled. He, he says in Romans chapter 13, let me, let me uh, say this to you, make sure I'm giving scripture to you to support this. He says in Romans chapter 13, he says these words. He says this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Or in Romans chapter eight, what he says is this. He tells us this. He says that we are those who God is fulfilling his law in. He says that he sent forth his son in order the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I'm gonna go over it one more time. Because I, this is salvation itself. Paul does the same thing in Galatians. You're under the law. You're condemned by the law, right? By, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. And then he says this, but Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then when we get to Galatians chapter 5, he says this. He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't disobey anything in the law. What's going on here? What, I'm, what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is this, that Jesus is not simply saying, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, he's not just saying this so that you'll say, justification by faith, yes. He's saying this to blessed people who already have salvation. And he's saying to these blessed people, you really must learn to walk in a righteousness that exceeds the holiest hypocrites around. You've really got to have the real thing. You've really got to walk in righteousness. Which means that when Jesus teaches you, and we'll get there about divorce, and oath-taking, and retaliation, and loving your enemies, and praying not so people notice, but so God notices, He's actually teaching you about the only true way that leads to heaven. He wants you to know the real thing. 
He's not interested in making people who use their doctrine as a shield to hide their ungodliness. He's interested in making a people whose blessedness comes from what God has done and it creates real godliness. Are you with me? Which means that the Sermon on the Mount is our life. It means the Sermon on the Mount is, Lord, even though it all feels rough, poor in spirit, meek, pure in heart, even though pure in heart sometimes feels like I'm missing out on all the good stuff. It's blessed. It's blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm under the smile of God. I'm blessed. And now from this blessed place, not to get blessed, but because I'm blessed, oh Lord, teach me all you have to say about anger, about divorce, about oaths, about retaliation, about what it looks like to actually walk like you, Jesus. Because that is the only real path to the kingdom of heaven. Last point. First, out of the abundance of his heart, Jesus tells his disciples how blessed they are. Next, out of the abundance of heart, Jesus tells his disciples the ways of the kingdom. So they'll know. It's not a mystery how we're to walk. He, he wants to spell it out step by step. He wants to disciple us. And then third, out of the abundance of his heart, he tells them a number of stories to, or parables or illustrations, I guess would be best, to keep them on the path. To keep them on the path. I never noticed this before, but uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, to the end of the chapter, or you could look at it this way, Matthew chapter 7, 13, to the end of the sermon, is all a comparison of two different ways. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, we have a comparison between the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction. In uh, Matthew chapter, sorry, Matthew 7, 15 to verse 20, we have a comparison between the good tree that produces good fruit and the bad tree that produces bad fruit. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, we have sort of a one-sided comparison of the false confession. Lord, Lord, we know you. No, you don't. And the true confession. And then in Matthew 7, 24 through 26, we have a comparison between the house built on a rock and the house built on sand. What's Jesus doing with this abundance of illustrations? Well, one, he's doing what so many scholarly preachers refuse to do, actually illustrating his points. But why is he doing it? Because he doesn't just want to say to them, you're blessed. And he doesn't just want to say to them, here's what you need to do in response to that blessing. He wants to say, I want you to know for sure that you're on the right path. Does it feel narrow? Right path. Are you following a good tree bearing good fruit as opposed to a false teacher that bears bad fruit? Right path. Are you making a confession that says, Lord, Lord, and then actually does what Jesus says? Right path. Are you building your life on sand of worldly wisdom or the solid rock of Christ and his words? Right path. And in every word you should hear, I want you in heaven. I want you to make it all the way. I want you to know you're blessed. I want you to know the path. I want you to know you're on the right path because I want you to know if you hear my words, you will arrive all the way safely home. You've probably heard that salmon swim back upstream at the end of their lives and they can actually retrace 
upstream, right to the very spawning pool they were born in. Which is a pretty amazing thing when you realize that many salmon these days, well, they never spawned in a natural pool. They were born in some man-made pool where all kinds of salmon are being produced so lots of us can have salmon. What's amazing is the salmon's honing sense is so strong that they've actually found salmon that have swum upstream banging on the grates underneath those man-made pools waiting to get back in. Their orientation to where they're from is undeniable and irresistible and drives them in the longest upstream swims. Christian, you have been given a poverty of spirit, a purity of heart, a love for righteousness that will not die. And it will lead you to hunger and thirst and receive even Jesus' hardest sayings. And if you listen to him, though it may seem like your life is not going anywhere, you will find yourself on the right narrow path. You will find yourself with a life built on rock. And you will find yourself on the last day having arrived all the way home against all the odds. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and praise you for how much Jesus cares for us how much the abundance of his heart is to teach us and instruct us and lead us. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and encourage us every week we're in this sermon so that we are faithful and true and we make it all the way home. I pray that you'd help those who are only feeling poverty and meekness, only feeling purity and hunger, to also feel your blessing on their lives. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.